Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you. Welcome to another edition of Radio Islam. This is your host, Tariq Alameen, and we are broadcasting on WCEV 1450 AM, streaming live at www.wcev1450.com. If you are new to the Radio Islam family, we welcome you. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, we're a live call-in talk radio program, and we talk just about everything. We broadcast every day from 6 to 7 p.m. Central, right here from the wonderful city of Chicago, Illinois. Uh, as a matter of fact, we're right in the Palmer House. Um, and you can keep up with us on social media by following and liking our pages on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You'll find us at Radio Islam USA. And that's the same handle you're going to use to find our podcast, uh, all these episodes that you hear, uh, that you appreciate, that you may want to revisit and share uh, with friends and family. Wherever you get your podcast, SoundCloud, Google Play, uh, iTunes, or TuneIn, at Radio Islam is where you're going to find us. And that is that. So welcome, Radio Islam family. Uh, uh, we've got, a, as always, an informative uh, and enlightening show for you. We're going to start out talking with uh, some of the great folks over at, uh, at Ifanka. It is the uh, I Heart Halal Fest that is coming. And we have Asma Ahad, and she is on the line with us. She's the Halal Market Development Director for Ifanka, which is the Islamic Food and Nutritional Council of America. And we're going to talk to her about this upcoming event of I Heart Halal, the I Heart Halal Fest. Assalamu alaikum. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it is a pleasure. It's a pleasure. So uh, tell us a bit about the, the concept and inspiration behind the uh, I Heart Halal Fest. Um, the I Heart Halal Fest, um, the I Heart Halal Festival was created to create a platform that gives voice to the Muslim consumer. Um, at Ifanka, we work very hard at um, bringing industry to the table and to meet the needs of consumers. And sometimes what we notice is that there's... There's a there's a break in the link between understanding the needs of the consumers and manufacturers understanding what the consumers want. So we really want to make that connection here, and uh, we, we're bringing this festival together to show that Muslims are not monolithic. We're a multifaceted um, group of people, and we have different opinions and we live our lives in different ways, but one of the things that brings us all together uh, in a common thread is living a halal lifestyle. <clears throat> so that's kind, of, uh, that's kind of the thought process behind this event. And then also what we want to showcase is that halal is not only for the Muslim consumer. What we found in our research uh, repeatedly is that um, people who don't um, people who are not Muslim find halal very appealing, and uh, we want to demonstrate that uh, halal is is good and it's meant for everybody and it's a concept that everybody could get behind. So we've opened up the doors not only to the Muslim community and not not only just like a certain group of Muslims but the entire Muslim community, but we've reached beyond that. We've reached out to our interfaith community and our broader communities that support us like the ACLU, the Catholic Theological Union, the Anti-Defamation League, those are some of the groups that we've reached out to and have come back to us. Mm, that's an impressive group. Yeah. Um, now, you mentioned halal lifestyle. Yeah. For our non-Muslim listeners, would you expound a little bit on that idea of what is a halal lifestyle? So halal uh, literally means permissible in Arabic, and it's most often used uh, when we're referring to a diet. 
akin to kosher, halal means permissible, uh, and and that means you exclude things that are forbidden, which are like pork and alcohol. But that's only when you're talking about food. But what we've what we understand is that there's so much more um, that's associated with the word halal than we traditionally link it to, right? So, uh, for example, pharmaceuticals or cosmetics also play a role in it. And all of these things are relevant. You know, Muslims utilize cosmetics. Like, women wear, Muslim women do wear makeup. Muslim women do, or Muslim, uh, the Muslim population in general do, does use um, pharmaceutical products. Um, so it's all relevant to us. And demonstrating that it's relevant to us is so important. Um, and explaining that halal, finding permissible ways to meet those needs are so important. Right. Now, now you mentioned that one of the goals was to, was to get the attention of manufacturers, to let them know that, um, well, that there is a base, there's, yeah. there's a consumer base for halal products. Yeah, and it's not limited to the traditional halal consumer. Yes. Now, you mentioned, you also mentioned uh, cosmetics. Now, I'm familiar with some of the research around, around food. Uh, there's a, there, there are a lot of folks who are becoming aware of halal, as, as, as you mentioned, as an option um, uh, in comparison to kosher. Mm-hmm. But uh, has there also been research done that, uh, that deals with uh, cosmetics? I don't think as um, in, as deeply as it has been done for food, mm-hmm. but there is research that demonstrates that uh, Muslim women, and I don't have the data in front of me, but sure. there are research firms like uh, Dinar Standard and other research outlets that have demonstrated that um, cosmetics is a big um, area for Muslims. And I'm not just saying from the purchasing power. Purchasing power is very important, and there is a strong... Uh, it's a multi-billion-dollar industry to market to the Muslim community globally, sure. but I'm also speaking about in terms of influencers. Some of the top influencers throughout the United States, um, in terms of beauty and cosmetics, are Muslims, and they're driving uh, trends mm-hmm. um, for the general population. And they're not only driving trends in North America, but there's also because. Instagram and other social media networks are global. They're also driving global behavior. Right, right. Now, who are some of the other, or is Ifanka the sole, uh, the sole organization behind the iHeart Festival? So Ifanka is the producing organization, mm-hmm. and what we've done is we've tried to reach out to different communities and groups of people to kind of bring um, different, um, <clears throat> different uh, programming to the table, mm-hmm. and. Um, and so I think essentially the Wifanka is a producing organization. Right, right. Okay. Now, what, what is the I Heart Halal Festival comprised of? So much. It's hard to say it in, in, in a very, <laughs> like, everybody's like, can you put a poster together that summarizes everything? And I'm like, okay. And we try to put something together. Um, but it's, it's so much. It's for spirituality. We have Sheikh Hamza Yusuf and Imam Zaid Shakir um, coming out. And Sheikh Hamza Yusuf is going to be closing the entire event, and he's going to be talking about Muslims as trendsetters um, and how, it's, how standing by our values has enabled us to stand for something that exemplifies what the rest of the community is looking for as well. Um, and uh, Imam Zaid Chakra is going to be talking about leading an authentic life uh, in a halal way. Um, we also have a high-end modest fashion show where we're bringing a choreographer from London mm. 
that is going to be uh, putting together this modest fashion show, and we have a lot of designers. Um, I wanted to highlight a couple of them. Uh, Arthi Zara is one of our sponsors, and then Luella um, is going to be on the runway, as well as the local shop, Akira, Akira, which you see in all the local shop, local malls in, in the Chicagoland area. Mm-hmm. They're going to be there, and one of the great things about Akira is demonstrating how, like, a, a mall a store you see at the mall that you might not think is relevant to a Muslim woman is really relevant because there are clothing items that you can find in almost any store that that could mar- be marketed to a Muslim woman. Mm, okay. Let, let me let me switch back to, to food for a second and ask, uh, as the public is starting to acknowledge halal food, um, where do we as a community go in terms of being uh, of being influencers uh, on an individual and organizationally, uh, where, where do we go from here? So I think we're already doing it, and I think we're doing a great job of it. And it's just, you know, in terms of, um, I'm going to give one example, uh, University of Chicago, the students at University of Chicago several years back uh, were paying for their meal plans and living on campus, but they were not eating the meat on campus because it didn't meet the halal the halal requirements that they were looking for, and they came back to their campus um, dining facility and said, "Hey, our dietary needs are not being met, and um, and because your meat, we don't have a protein source for our um, for us to eat every day." And the university came back to them and said, "Well, we have kosher and we have vegan options, and you know we think that that should suffice you." And what the students did at University of Chicago was they did a survey, and in that survey they found that overwhelmingly, I think over two-thirds of the students said that the options available were not feasible or were not acceptable for them. And the other thing they said was that um, they were, the other thing they found upon further research is that these kids were not getting their macronutrients met specifically in the protein area. So University of Chicago kind of reluctantly put together their first food service station thinking it would be cost prohibitive mm-hmm. and that it would also be non- not appealing to the general population. And what they found is that um, I think they're like about five, six years out from their initial food service station. Now they have two food service stations and they found that 21% of all meals sold on campus come from those food service stations, and they're second only. They're the second busiest food service station on campus, and they're second only to the food service station that sells like hot dogs and hamburgers. So what that tells us is that we know that on, at the University of Chicago's campus, the, pop, the Muslim population does not equal 20%. It's probably like about 5% or less. So we know without a doubt that a majority of the people that are buying their um, their meals at the halal food service station are your non-traditional halal consumers. They're, in other words, they're not Muslim. And so we know that's an example where a student-based behavior has caused a change on campus and has validated that halal is not only relevant to the Muslim consumer, but also to the general population. Mm, obviously, obviously. Uh, now, there is, um, as we talk about the public consciousness, not just in terms of, of being more familiar with uh, terms like halal, uh, but just in terms of being more health conscious, um, you know, not wanting to eat, uh, you know, uh, not, you know, they want to make sure that they, they don't have non, non-GMO uh, items in their, in their baskets, uh, looking for grass-fed um, uh, beef uh, and free-range chicken, things like that. 
And it seems like there is a there is definitely a uh, a convergence with a lot of the, um, the 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 criteria, or I should say the the environment that halal meats are already produced in. Yeah. Can you talk a little, a little bit about that? Yeah, you know, I want to start with, um, <clears throat> I think several years back, uh, I had done a focus group with a group of Muslim moms who um, had kids uh, in, in, like, grades between second grade and eighth grade. And one of the things that we wanted to do is we wanted to probe why they were, uh, you know, what, their, what halal meant for them and why they were they would spend more on groceries or why would they spend more on especially meat and halal certified products and one of the things that we found like if we had to boil the whole story down to like two words it would be self-preservation it's really knowing what you're eating and preserving your preserving yourself as a person like from a health perspective and also a spiritual perspective and what when we take that research and we put we overlay it with looking at what the general population is looking for, especially people who are conscious of the food they eat and are willing to spend more on their food. It's, it's they're the same values. It's self-preservation. Um, so when you see the latest trends on on eating habits of the general population, you realize that those are essentially Islamic values, and many Muslims carry those values, and that's why halal is so relevant to not only the Muslim population, but the general population as well. Yeah, and I find that I find that uh, I'm just I'm really happy about that. Yeah, uh, just to think that's something that we sometimes would take for granted. Yeah, or or even uh, even in some of the resistance because there is there has been resistance out there. Yeah, um, to it. How have you, how has Ifanka uh, dealt with that resistance? And I know that's a little bit off topic in terms yeah. of... So you're saying in terms of people uh, feeling like halal might not be yes. um, the thing that they want to do. Sure. You know, it's interesting because we, I don't, I, maybe I saw that um, 10 years ago, but I think that the overall tide of the, of the, of the world is moving towards globalization, and anytime somebody does business outside of the Western Hemisphere, they most likely have to have their products certified halal. So even if people realize it or not, they're probably eating halal products. Um, <laughs> so that's that's great. And then also, um, when people are looking to meet the least common denominator, like. Halal essentially fits in the least common denominator. If you want something good and you want to and you want to portray your product, like all the things that all the factors that it takes for you to fit into that category, also happens to coincide with halal values. Mm. Okay. So, um, with regard to the uh, festival, yes. Uh, what what's the cost and how long? How, what's the duration? So this festival is so dynamic, mm-hmm. um, and basically. The festival starts on Friday morning and ends on Sunday evening. Friday morning, we're starting with a school, inter-Islamic school field trip where we have like about six Islamic schools signed up so far. I think like five or six, I can't remember offhand. Islamic schools signed up to come out and join us for a morning. And it's called a Halal Immersion Day where they get to meet um, people who have um, who are part of the halal economy and have lived as Muslims. Uh, for example, we have Master Chef Amanda Saab doing a cooking demo and talking about what it was like to be on Master Chef, being a Muslim woman, and what are some of the challenges she faced. We also have Harun Latif from Dinar Standard 
talking to the kids about, you know, how important you are as consumers and, you know, your values are very important and it drives the global economy. And, like, as Muslims, we might not realize it, but the halal economy is valued well over a trillion dollars annually. And each of us contribute to that economy. Yeah. And so, you know, those are just some of the, some of the things that we're going to be sharing with the kids on the field trip. We're going to have a Friday prayer. Um, Mina, Muslim Youth of North America, helped us put together some of the programming. So we're excited about having them as a partner. And then the kids are going to have a chance to, to meet and greet some of these people. The Jama Khutbah, of course, is going to be an important part of the day. Um, and so it's going to be, and then um, uh, Zainab Ismail is going to be joining us, and she's going to be talking about spirituality and fitness. So it's going to be a great, a great day. And then we're going to have in the evening, um, open it up to everybody, and we're going to have uh, some more culinary demonstrations, and we're going to have a high-end modest fashion show Saturday again. Uh, we're going to have a high-end modest fashion show uh, for the people who can't come out on Friday night. We also have a beauty master class led by the first hijabi cover girl ambassador, Nora Afia. And then we also have a top talent um, comedy lineup for Saturday night. And it's going to be hosted by Azra Usman and Mo Amr is a headliner. And, um, and then, of course, Sunday we have our... Uh, several other amazing, more culinary demonstrations, but our grand finale is going to be Hamza Yusuf speaking, um, closing off talking about how uh, Muslims are trendsetters and how we have great values, and that's what makes us great trendsetters. So um, that's going to close off the event. Um, general admission to the event is only $5, and that's inclusive of everything except for the comedy show. The, wow. Um, it's $5? inclusive of everything except for the comedy show the beauty master class and the fashion show and uh, those three items are only $25 each like imagine going to a comedy show for $25 with such a great uh, nationally renowned lineup that's unheard of um, we've priced everything very reasonably and we have a lot of promotions going out over the next two days so hopefully people can catch those promotions and, and join us but if you want to just come to the event and sit through like you can hear Sheikh Hamza Yusuf speak. You could be in all the culinary demonstration. The general admission is only $5. Imam Zay Chakir, too, included in that $5. Wow. that You can't beat that price point. You cannot. Uh, <laughs> we really you know, we really just want to open it, and we've been very open, and we said we want it's open to everybody because there's something everybody, the halal values are everybody's values, and it's really open not only just to Muslims, but Everybody in our community is welcome. Now, can people purchase, uh, can they pay for admission at the door or is Yeah, so online? the tickets are going to be higher at the door. So if you want a general admission ticket, we highly advise you buying it ahead of time. They're only $5 at the door. They're going to jump to $10. And then if you want to buy, like, uh, event tickets, uh, like, for example, the comedy show ticket or the fashion show or the beauty master class tickets, they're going to be increased from $25 to $35 at the door. Okay. So now where would they go to get their tickets uh, ahead of time? So if you want to get them ahead of time, you can go to www.iheartshalal.com and go to tickets, and you can purchase the kit- tickets, and it's quite simple. Okay. So we hope uh, we hope everybody um, has you know puts it in their calendar to join us, and it's going to be an amazing event. And what's going to make it amazing is not only the great program we have in place, but everybody coming out and supporting us. Well, it sounds like you have a great program uh, set up, and uh, I'm sure it's going to be successful, definitely. So, uh, Asma, we thank you for taking the time to talk with us, 
Uh, Radio Sound family, we've been talking with Asma Ahad. She's the Halal Market Development Director for Ifanka. Uh, and we've been talking about the I Heart Halal Festival uh, happening this coming Friday, right? Yep. Okay. Starting Friday, April 13th, with the kickoff with the Islamic School field trip. And that field trip day uh, from 10 to 2.30 is open to everyone. It's free of charge. So if you want to come out, I know I understand Chicago, Chicago public schools do not have school on that day. So if your kids are home and you want to do an event, come out to Navy Pier. It's free of charge. Um, the only thing you might have to do is uh, buy some lunch. Okay. But that's it. All right. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. All right, Radio Islam family. Uh, as I said, that was Asma Ahad, the uh, Halal Market Development Director for Ifanka. We're going to go ahead and take a short break, and we will be back in just a minute. Below, traffic had stopped. Pedestrians were lying on sidewalks and curled up in doorways. There was no sign of violence, no wrecks, nothing like that. It was as if the people in New York had simply decided to stop whatever they were doing and pass out. Ice coated my stomach. The invasion has started. To find out what happens next, read Percy Jackson and the Olympians by Rick Reardon. Explore new worlds and check out more cool books at your local library. And visit read.gov. Brought to you by the Library of Congress and the Ad Council. A boy born in Joplin, Missouri was fascinated by anything with wheels and a motor. The odds of him going on to fascinate millions with his talent, one in 260,000. The odds of him having 15 career NASCAR victories, one in 1.7 million. The odds of a child being diagnosed with autism, one in 88. I'm Jamie McMurray, and my niece has autism. Learn more at autismspeaks.org signs. Brought to you by Autism Speaks and the Ad Council. My name is Sue Smith. I'm 38 and I work at a graphic design company. And the teenage me would tell you I wouldn't be into drawing and art if it wasn't for Big Brother's Big Sisters. My big sister showed me early on that I could do anything. And to the young me, that meant a lot. My big sister's name is Sheila, and Sheila is the reason that this eight-year-old grows up to have an amazing job as a of your time, you're helping Big Brother's Big Sisters help a child. Start something today at BigBrothersBigSisters.org. Brought to you by Big Brother's Big Sisters and the Ad Council. Foreclosure is hard on every member of the family, but your family is not alone. If you're struggling with your mortgage, there is help. To learn about the government's Making Home Affordable program, visit makinghomeaffordable.gov or call 1-888-995-HOPE to speak to a HUD-approved housing counselor. It's free of charge. Visit makinghomeaffordable.gov or call 1-888-995-HOPE today. Brought to you by the U.S. Treasury, HUD, NeighborWorks America, and the Ad Council. This is a guided meditation on parenting. Take this time to breathe deeply and close your eyes. Right now, you're completely in control. Unlike the time you and your son played basketball and you attempted to slam dunk. Or when you tried removing those raccoons from the basement. Concentrate on the soothing sound of my voice. Release the memory of when you wrestled with that beehive in your son's treehouse. Let go of the time you thought that skunk was a cat, or when you pulled into the garage with your son's bike on top of the car. Deep breaths. Deep breaths. You don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. There are thousands of teens in foster care who don't need perfection. They need you. For more information on how you can adopt, 
Visit AdoptUSKids.org. A public service announcement from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, AdoptUSKids, and the Ad Council. Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you. Welcome back to Radio Islam. This is your host, Tariq El Amin, and we are broadcasting on WCEV 1450 AM, reaching the world by streaming live at WCEV1450.com. If you are new to the Radio Islam family, you can keep up with us by following and liking our pages on social media uh, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You will find us at Radio Islam USA. That's at Radio Islam USA. And you can also find each episode, uh, this episode included, wherever you get your podcast. Google Play, SoundCloud, TuneIn, iTunes. Uh, you'll find us once again at the same username at Radio Islam USA. And remember, sharing is caring. So if you like it, it's a good chance, a good possibility that your family and friends are going to like it too. So that being said, um, oh, I also invite you, uh, for those who would like to, uh, if you want to tweet at us, you can do so. Uh, I already gave the tw- uh, our, our Twitter handle, at Radio Islam USA. Um, and if you want to give us a call, you can do so at 312-750-1178. That's 312-750-1178. So, um, Radio Islam family. We're going to just jump into a, a few things that have caught our attention and I guess have, that have caught most of the country's attention. And, and I think, uh, for that matter, the world's attention uh, right now. Um, we are used to, I think, as a, just as a society, not just, not just you know, um, something that's just common here in the United States, but I think people around the world, we're, we are used to, unfortunately, acts of violence. Uh, perpetrated against each other. And unfortunately, a lot of times the people that are on the receiving end of that violence, these are people who don't have the opportunity, they don't have the uh, ability to advocate for themselves, they don't have the ability to, uh, you know, to to protest or cry out. Uh, But one of the things that we do have, I guess that you could call a blessing, even when there is such oppression uh, going on in so many different places in the world, is that we do have, uh, we have this mass communication uh, platform uh, at our fingertips. You know, we have, we have people with, uh, with cameras and, and cell phones. We have people who are able to document what's going on and let the world know. And the world has seen, in addition to the violence uh, that is taking place uh, in, uh, in, in Burma, uh, but we also see front and center a war uh, not a war, because it's really not a war, but um, well, they're terming it as, as a civil war uh, that's been going on for the past seven years uh, in Syria. And we've just, w- just witnessed again the second time that chemical weapons uh, have been used there. And the death toll, um, I believe at the, the, the last count was, was it like 40 people, Ibrahim? Something like that. Okay, well... I, don't don't hold me, but the point is, uh, if we if we really embrace this idea of the loss of of one life being like being like the loss of uh, a, a generation or a whole people, then one person is too many, and let alone forty or fifty or any any number. Um, 
but the manner in which these people uh, have been attacked, that's, uh, I guess that, that adds to the, to the inhumanity, um, uh, inhumanity of it. Uh, the chemical attack is one of the, it, you know, it's a terrible, it's a terrible way to go. Gasping and, and seizing, um, it, it's, 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 it's inhumane. Uh, and so we're not going to get into the, to the argument of what, what is justified or not. Um, I'm sorry, let, let me, let me clear that up. No, no, this is absolutely not justified. What I'm, what I'm talking, what I'm thinking on just on the fly is the, the idea of certain, certain, certain weapons are, are frowned upon, right? International, the international community has taken a stance against chemical weapons, the use of chemical weapons, especially, uh, especially against uh, civilians. And that, that, that's one of the, the major points that, um, that we've been brought back to again as we see these pictures of children, uh, uh, men and women that, are, that have been attacked and, and are dealing with the, the after effects of this, this chemical attack. So. Ibrahim is with me. So I think, uh, assalamu alaikum, by the way. Um, so what's going on is this is not certainly not the first time that Syria is alleged to have used chemical weapons against civilians. Mm-hmm. Um, the I think in 2013, yep. which was during the war, Syria uh, entered an agreement. They signed on to an agreement against the use of chemical weapons. The agreement itself, the rules, I think, go back to 1997 or something like that. Mm-hmm. But during the course of the war itself, the Syrian regime agreed not to use chemical weapons, but they've um, apparently not, you know, held on to that promise. Right. Now, Russia and the Syrian regime itself, and I think Iran too, which Russia and Iran being the backers of the Syrian regime in this whole uh, war situation, I think to my knowledge, they still have denied, they've all denied that the latest incident was um, a that any wrongdoing by the Syrian regime. They called it a hoax. Yeah, um, they've called it a. Ho- which is interesting because you heard that ac- allegation the last time chemical weapons were used um, about a year ago. Mm-hmm. Um, the last major incident, which was about a year ago, which caused the then President Trump, who was newly uh, inaugurated president, to launch an attack against some of the facilities. I think it was like a, an air base or something yep. like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so even then we heard voices on the far right saying that, you know, this is a hoax and, and voices all over the spectrum saying that this is just a hoax. And I've even heard um, certain pundits allege that the Syrian people are launching this on themselves in order to you know garner sympathy or something like that um which is all pretty crazy you know accusations um but now we kind of almost saw this sparring match between nikki haley ambassador nikki haley and uh the russian officials yeah yeah well you know i think what people are 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 losing or probably paying more attention to uh than the and then the way the uh syrian people are affected on the ground is they're looking at the political subtext. They're looking at what this means or, or looking at this as an opportunity for President Trump to uh, assert himself and are pro- 
and it's difficult. It's difficult to to be a one track individual. I guess we have to look at multiple things uh, at one time. Mm-hmm. But stepping away from uh, from the uh, victims of this chemical attack, who I who I must say that we should obviously keep in our prayers, uh, as well as all of those who are dealing with any type of um, any 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 oppressive uh, circumstances. But I'm gonna shift my gaze over to President Trump and his response. So this is the first time that he has named Vladimir Putin um, in any type of a, of a critique. Uh, he has not done that before. Now he hasn't done it verbally, right? He did it through Twitter. And going back to about a year ago, when uh, when the Syrian regime did the same thing, when they used chemical weapons, um, his poll numbers and his response with you know with sending in those tomahawk um, uh, the missiles and all of that striking with the uh, strikes that they did, his poll numbers went up um, dramatically. Uh, he was seen as decisive. He was seen as uh, you know as, as confident and competent. Uh, all of the, uh, everything that you want to see in a president. So the other side of this is is now this is an opportunity for 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 a different show uh, to take place that really has nothing to do with the Syrian people because these are also the same people that were on the his uh, his 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 ban his you know the the list of countries that were banned from entry into America. So was not concerned about them at that point even living under the, a regime that had no real value for uh, its citizens' uh, lives, but now gets to grandstand again. So, Yeah, I, what you bring up, I think it, it's interesting because it brings up um, another point about how this is so complicated, where uh, the point where kind of the, pres- the United States domestic policy and domestic trouble, turmoil, whatever, and international policy kind of intersect. So it's a very common phenomenon that whenever uh, a president takes some type of international action against some type of aggressor, that their ratings, their approval ratings shoot up. I think that's a pretty uh, common phenomenon. Mm -hmm. How is um, that going to impact President Trump's decision, or will it not impact it? Um, And also, how is all the shuffling going on in the White House going to impact the broader foreign policy of this administration? That's a question that we really are just going to have to see the, wait and see the answer to. Because uh, McMaster is out, for example, and he's, gonna, he's been replaced with Bolton. How is that going to change the course You know that the United States is willing to take or not? Mm-hmm. Um, they really, we, I guess we just have to see how it plays out. It, it definitely complicates things. Yeah, but what we have seen, we've seen that he has a pattern of manipulating the the news cycle, mm-hmm. and well, whenever the news, uh, the, the the media outlets have allowed him to do so, and I think they're getting a little more savvy in 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 dealing with his uh, with his you know with his eruptions. Yeah, and also one thing I I want to point out, mm-hmm. just that we've observed in the past year or so mm-hmm. in this White House, is uh, President Trump's. I guess what you would call a management style or just his style of making big decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of times, and what I think is going to happen here is he's going to throw out 
an idea proposal like you know we got to do this and then i feel like he's going to try to wait and see what his how his base reacts to that whether they are with it or whether they are against it and then come out with a more f final decision you know after the after gauging their reaction because a lot of his uh policies are very i mean if i guess if you want to give credit where credit is due he's very loyal to his base um overall he's loyal to he's loyal to fox news yeah well <laughs> it's kind of related i guess um <clears throat> but yeah yeah I, I get what you're saying i'm just i'm uh i'm being facetious um i don't think that he's actually going to wait that long mm -hmm. um i think that because of um i think you mentioned in the, in the news that his uh cohen his offices was uh were, were raided yeah right um so many people around him have been uh implicated uh there have been far too there have been at least, what, three, two for certain that I know of, guilty pleas that have been entered into um, from folks that were in his, uh, in his camp. And also dealing with the Stormy Daniels thing. Mm -hmm. I think that he needs something big. I think he realized he need, he's, been giving, he's been given that big opportunity to shift the, the narrative and People wondering what he's going to do. I don't think that's enough to keep those other things at bay, uh, to to really turn public sentiment. I think he has to do something big, something decisive, and and that means another uh, military strike. But what complicates that once again is um, the idea of it being an isolation of of any real efforts to have any real impact there. Um, and by that I mean, some some folks sense the sentiment is Bashar uh, al-Assad. He's not going anywhere, right? That's that's a given. He's not going anywhere at this point. Mm -hmm. um, so to to do a missile strike to to any type of military uh, response, it's it's going to have limited. It's going to have a limited outcome. So it's one that's going to have to go back to there. Ha there will have to be a diplomatic resolution. Yeah, and diplomatic. And let me um, say this last thing. And diplomatic resolutions are not necessarily popular because we have a we have a, a culture that embraces war on other fronts. Not they don't want it here, right? But we embrace the idea of taking it to somebody else. Well, um, you kind of you indirectly pointed out that this is the this is actually considered one of the last str rebel strongholds. Um, in Syria and the Syrian government views this time and a lot of other people do as kind of almost trying to bring, bring closure to this long war like the government has almost um, regained all of this territory that was under dispute just right before Russia came it's interesting before Russia entered the picture the rebels they were almost done they were yeah, I mean they almost won the whole war yeah. Then Russia came in and started having uh, performing these airstrikes, etc. And then we know how the story goes after yeah. that. Um, it was yeah, Barrel bombs complete and all disaster that. after that. Yeah. And ISIS came comes into the picture, and you know everything. This whole complicated web that we now know as the Syrian war. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, so that that's another thing that complicates things. Is it? I 
from what from what, what we know so far, what we can see, nobody except the Syrian rebels uh, is left who is actually entertaining the idea of removing Assad from power anymore. You know, everyone's kind of like, if that's what it takes to end this whole conflict, mm. to have him stay, then they're kind of willing to go with that. So how will that impact the decision on whether, you know, would it be kind of a one-and-done thing once again? Uh, airstrikes on chemical weapons facilities or, or you know, um, airstrips and whatnot yeah. is it beginning kind of a one-and-done thing with the, with that thought in mind of this guy's eventually going to have to stay in power. You know, it's really complicated. This, this Syrian conflict is incredibly complicated. It's the, the days of, like one of my professors was saying, mm-hmm. um, I don't, I don't think they're alone that that those days of um just this one country versus that one country fighting on the ground you know those days are like long gone war well, we, we're in the era of what's called new wars mm-hmm. which are more deadly and they more closely resemble civil wars and there's a lot more civilian casualties um so that era of one or two countries versus another and it's kind of um obviously war is always ugly and grotesque but compared to what we have now kind of a more um mentally easy to process you know such as if you look at world war ii for example you know Mm -hmm. it was a lot easier to process mentally as far as what's going on and who is against who um as opposed to what we have nowadays well these are proxy wars Mm -hmm. uh and and that's and and everybody realizes even though we say it's a syrian civil war we realize that it's it's actually the united states um against Russia and, and Iran. Yeah, but also there's so many layers, too. There's yeah. one top layer. At the top, we have Russia and the United States. Russia is willing to take a lot more active role than the United States. Oh, yeah. Um, they're almost yeah. kind of opposites in that aspect as to how active of a role they want to play. Mm-hmm. The United States wants to stay as far away as possible while still achieving you know, certain outcomes. And then we have another layer under that, which is Iran and Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia start, seems like yes. it's starting to be yes. more concerned with other more domestic stuff now, but mm-hmm. um, you know we don't know. And then Turkey is also involved. Turkey is kind of at that tier. Turkey um, has an agenda against the Kurds, mm-hmm. who were also fighting against ISIS. Sure. Um, so, so <laughs> like I said, it's a very you know complex web of things that's going on here different agendas different interests different actors which well, and makes then, everything so and, and it's funny messy. to see how interests align mm-hmm. you know who uh, who supports who and for how long uh, yeah. shifting alliances uh, that's that's definitely something to, to take note of but uh, we, I guess we'll be waiting like everybody else to, uh, to see what happens Trump has said that he's going to make a decision within the next uh, 24 to 48 hours, uh, whether to launch military reprisal. Um, and and I have to mention this, right? I don't want to spend all of the, the last half talking about this, but uh, I have to mention that I remember, and I'm sure everybody else does, on the campaign trail when he was asked about what he would do about certain uh, situations where uh, the United States foreign, uh, where military might might have to be a uh, consideration. And his response was, well, I'm not going to tell you. I'm not going to broadcast what I'm going to do. Oh, really? I don't remember that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, he says, I'm not going to broadcast what I'm going to do. That was during the campaign? Yeah, during the campaign. I suspect it was probably because he didn't have an answer at that time. <laughs> well, I, and, and what's more dangerous right now is that the answer that, um, that we could get is going to be affected by, you know what, I'm not going to say it. I was going to say it could be affected by Michael uh, Bolton. But to be quite honest with you, I don't really think that it matters who's I think this is all this is all Trump and it is all based on what he thinks uh, as, as you mentioned earlier, it's all based on what he think is going to thinks is going to be the most popular uh, response. So um, yeah, I just found it really I found that funny that now he's he's tweeting out 24 hours, 48 hours, you know. Uh, very interesting, very interesting. So there's also, there's also one other thing that I wanted to bring up. Um, CNN, um, a friend of mine sent this, uh, sent a, an article to me which uh, talks about a lynching memorial. And this is in Montgomery, Alabama. And uh, for those of you who are students of uh, uh, United States history, uh, particularly uh, with regard to the, the precursors to the Civil Rights Movement, uh, the uh, Jim Crow, Black Codes, Reconstruction, uh, all of these things, you know, uh, going back to uh, slavery. Um, Ida B. Wells, um, a wonderful uh, journalist uh, who put her life on the line for years uh, after uh, going across the South, tallying up the the number, tallying up not just the number, but getting names as well, of, of, of black people that had been lynched. And throughout her, throughout her, her, her time of, of, of compiling these, these, uh, this data, she had over 3,000. Now there are some, there are some who have added on to that through other sources, and the numbers are over, uh, the numbers over, say to be over 5,000. But this project, this memorial in Montgomery, Alabama, what it does is it doesn't just simply give you numbers, numbers, but it gives the names of the people that were that were lynched. And to understand lynching and the lynch mob mentality, um, it's to it's to be in the presence of, uh, of, of, of diminishment, to have your uh, humanity. Um, just completely um, just I ignored, uh, taken away. And the, the idea of lynching was to instill fear into the black communities in the South, uh, to keep them from trying to advocate for themselves, to keep them from, the, uh, from voting and, and from... from so what you're describing right now is literally the textbook definition of terrorism. Thank you. Say that again. The textbook <laughs> definition of terrorism. Yeah, yeah, and that's exactly that's exactly uh, what it was, uh, and that's why the Ku Klux Klan is is referred to as a it is a domestic terrorist organization. But one of the things that this um, that this memorial does, like I said, it takes not just the numbers, right? Because when you hear when you hear five thousand people were lynched or 3,000 people were lynched, but you don't, you don't know a name, then that, that, there's no personhood associated with it. it, it it's, it's abstract. 
Uh, and so what this does, you know, they give they give names for as many people as, as they can find. And some of the examples that they gave, I mean, it just uh, history for me because I'm a I'm a I'm a big student of history. Um, but and, and history can be painful. It can be upsetting. Um, but one of the like some of the scenarios, this one woman was lynched because she was a teacher because she told a group of white children to not throw rocks at people. So she was lynched. There was another young man who was lynched because he didn't call the police officer mister. So he was lynched. There was another, um, there was another man who was lynched because he knocked on a white woman's door. All right? And we can go on and on, and, and lynching was one part, and then it was also um, uh, burnings. But the real, the real thing to keep in mind is this, is that quite often many of these lynchings were advertised, they were staged, and they were attended by hundreds and sometimes thousands of people. There, this part of our history is one that we have not come to grips with. And because we haven't given those people uh, names, it's almost as if they have not been buried. And so they have not been given the dignity of a burial. Their families have not been given the dignity of, uh, of, of recognizing that a mother or father, a brother, husband, whatever was taken from them under just unimaginably horrific um, circumstances. So we are a country def that's definitely in need of healing, but we can't heal. I'm going to quote a Jay-Z verse. You can't heal what you, what you don't, what you never reveal. Right. That's what he said. Jay said it. Um, so, yeah. So if, if we're not honest about the things that, that have happened here, you know, how, how can we, how can we move past those things? So I'm looking forward to, uh, to going to Alabama this summer because I'm going to go. There's a life size. No, it's not a life size. It's, it's a huge picture of a, a, a woman, a black woman with her, her child, and she's chained. The chain is connected to somebody else. These are huge, huge um, uh, statues. And then they also have statues of, well, they're not really statues, but they're hanging, right? So uh, they said lynching was ugly. So this is not something that they want to sugarcoat, that they want to present in a in a, in a sanitized way. Uh, they want it to be ugly. And it sounds like, and the pictures I saw, it was just a really uh, visceral uh, reaction uh, that people are going to get. So, um, yeah, I don't know if, uh, if that's been a phenomenon in other places in, in the world. Uh, against one particular group of people, but um, I think it's I'm common. I mean, I've never lived in another country, but I think it's a common dynamic whenever we see one, like a, a dominant group, uh, oppress another or commit atrocities against the other, mm -hmm. that um, the oppressed group or the group that's been terrorized is kind of tried they tried to kind of make that group um forgotten make the tragedy forgotten at least you know yeah. as far as so we don't really see these uh americans that were lynched 
um, that weren't even considered Americans at the time, really, because that's why they were lynched. Mm-hmm. But um, they deserve to be known. You know, they yeah. deserve to be humanized. Yeah. And that's another p- the, like a part of the tragedy is that we don't even know like who these people were. They were just kind of, you know, lost in history in a way. Yeah. And so it's really important, as you said, a process of healing, which people think that like, okay, uh, Emancipation Proclamation was in 1864, right? Mm-hmm. So, well, everything must have been okay after that. Um, <laughs> and it's like, no. And then Civil Rights Act. Well, Civil Rights Act happened in the 1960s. Oh, we know we're done healing now. But the reality, that's not true. If you look at what's happening around you, just the name when you mentioned that very first name, Ida B. Wells. Yeah. You know what I thought of? What? Oh. The uh, the projects? Yeah. Because yeah. that's what I know, the name Ida B. Wells. So that shows that, I mean, that reminds me, and Martin Luther King, right? Yeah. Chris Rock says, any city you go to, Martin Luther King Drive is the most violent street there is. Yep. The healing yep. is not over. Mm. We've been, you know, the black community has been given these names, mm-hmm. uh, as almost like a tokenism like here take these names we'll name the street this we'll name the projects after this person that person Mm. and you know everything's okay but (laughs) reality is things are you know yeah still bad and it's still the healing process is ongoing yeah and and to put this in terms of one of the um narrations of the prophet peace and present project he said that um he says when one part of the body um and i'm paraphrasing it says one part of the body aches then the whole body aches, right? So if you see the if you see our society in those terms, if you see our the diversity in those terms, that if there's any part of us that is hurting, that is minimized, right, that is oppressed, then really we are all oppressed. We're all hurting. We're all minimized. Um, because we live in each other's reflection. And if we if we really underst- if we really understood that and embraced that, then we wouldn't have such a problem with admitting our shortcomings in history so we can do better today. Uh, I'm going to close with with this. Um, What bothers me most uh, is not just the fact that uh, our history is what it is, right? We can't do anything about what's what's taking place, what's what's gone before us. What bothers me most, what angers me, what saddens me is that today, right now, is that there are still people who have in their hearts and their places where that same animus, that same hatred, uh, and that same willingness to destroy black bodies exist without understanding that they are also destroying themselves within the, in the process. So that's a conversation for another day. Um, we want to go ahead and thank our engineer over at WCEV, Ramon. Thank you very much. We thank our engineer in studio, uh, the impressive one, assistant producer, Ibrahim Beg. Um, we are the, uh, he's uh, produced the uh, first segment. Uh, we are the producers for the second segment. We thank our executive producer, Abdul Malik Mujahid. I'm your host, Tariq al And we thank you for listening. Uh, the views expressed by the host and their guests on theirs are not to be taken as a representation of the position of Sound Vision. With that, pray you all have a great evening. We're going to leave you as we greeted you. Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you. Thank you.